Amen. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. All right, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screen behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks underneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, don't have access to one outside of this place, we would love for you to take that one home. And the kids that you're seeing leaving are going to the nursery. That's not some weird thing. All right, uh, but if you have a child that's interested in the nursery, go ahead. Um, so we value the Bible here. So if you don't have one outside of this place, we would love for you to steal that one. Uh, it's the authority by which everything I'm talking about today has any basis. Like, if you came here to hear me, sorry. Um, I, I'm not going to say anything of value that's outside of that. And so uh, that's our authority that we're under this morning. It's the tool that God uses to shape us individually and as a body called the church. Uh, it's uh, the primary means by which God makes himself known to us as his creation. So if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, take that one home and start reading it. We'll call it a win. All right, Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, we put our Ephesians series on hold for a month and a half to deal with a bunch of uh, Advent and first of the year stuff, but it's time to get started again, and I'm excited. And if you're not excited, I'm excited enough for both of us, so don't worry. All right. If you're new here, and uh, maybe you hadn't been around for the beginning part of the series, we're actually about three quarters of the way through this series. We started this all the way back in July, if you can remember that. Uh, and so uh, Ephesians is a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul to uh, a group of people that he calls saints. That's why we're calling our, our series To the Saints. Uh, and for Paul, the term saints is not uh, some venerated class of people connected to the Catholic Church, and it's not a football team from New Orleans, definitely. Right? And uh, for Paul, the, the the term saints is any follower of Jesus. Those who have been declared holy, justified, because they have trusted in the finished work of Jesus on the cross to pay the debt for their sin and reconcile them to God. All right? They have been declared holy, and therefore they are saints. All right? And so uh, that's, that's who Paul's writing to. And Paul's writing this letter to a group of Christian saints in the first century city of Ephesus. That's why it's called Ephesians. Really brilliant naming, right? Um, so Ephesus, during the first century, during this part of history, was a massive, massive deal. Uh, it was a port city on the coast of what's now Turkey. But I keep using the word was because there's nothing left of Ephesus today. It's nothing but ruins. All right? You can get on an airplane, you can fly to Turkey, you can pay your little tourist money, and you can go visit what's left of Ephesus, but all you're going to see is some rocks tipped over. All right? And so uh, it was a massive deal, though, in the first century. It was a major hub for culture. It was a major hub for economics and trade. But those things took a backseat to the real cash cow of the city, which was religion. All right? Not only was there a massive silversmith guild in the city of Ephesus, uh, they, would, they would make little statues of the Greek and Roman gods and ship them all over the Mediterranean. So that, there, there was that going on. So the economy was booming because of that. But the, the real cash cow, the big claim to fame for the city of Ephesus was the Temple of Artemis. Do we have a picture of that maybe we could show up? Hey! So that's an artist's rendering of what the temple might have looked like. Just like the rest of the city, it's nothing but ruins. It's just a big square on the ground right now. All right, so if you go all the way to Ephesus, Turkey, and go pay your money to look at the ruins of Ephesus, you're not going to see that. You're going to see a bunch of rocks tipped over. It's going to be great. All right, so there, but back in that day, during the first century, early part of the first century, also another artist's rendering. All right, so it was a massive, massive deal. Religion was big business in the city of Ephesus in the first century. It takes a brave man to walk into a city and start messing with big business, right? Brave man. 
All right? And that's exactly what Paul does. And so the letter to the Ephesians, Paul makes it a very specific emphasis uh, to draw a distinction between the gospel of Jesus Christ and all the religiosity encircling the city. Who cares about Artemis? The true God is not like her at all. Artemis is capricious and, and can be bent to your will sometimes. No, the true God is eternal and good. He is, he's got a plan that's from before the foundation of the world. Who cares about Artemis? This God is doing all things according to the counsel of his will. The true God is not waiting to smite those who, are dis, who displease him like the false gods they're accustomed to. This God is effectually loving and saving those who don't even deserve to know him. This God is eternal, and this God is good. So y'all ready to jump into Ephesians? You bet you are. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, time out. (laughs) Like y'all should really know what's coming now, right? All right, so if you're new, let, let, me, let me give you something that, that all these other people are really tired of hearing me say. There's a reason they're groaning, right? Never start your Bible reading for the day with the word therefore and then fail to place it in its proper context. All right? Find out what the therefore is there for. All right? So, especially this morning, because it's been seven weeks since we talked about the tail end of chapter four, right? All right? So, what's going on at the tail end of chapter four? Well, in chapter four, Paul explodes into a long list of commands as a result of fleshing out a gospel-changed heart. Uh, because of what Jesus has done, this is how you ought to live in response to that. And so it's command after command after command. Some of those commands are that we ought to put away falsehood and that we ought to, uh, that we ought to speak to one another in truth, but a truth that builds each other up, right? He says to put off the old self and to put on the new self. He says to put away uh, slander and clamor and wrath and malice and several other things and said to Forgive as we have been forgiven, he tells us. And then Paul takes a step back, he takes a deep breath, and he goes in for another round in chapter 5. All right? And so what does he say? He says, therefore, be imitators of who? All right, show of hands. Who has an absolutely dead-on impression of God? No? No one's brave enough to go that route? Nobody wants to take this show on the road, package it up for SNL, put it in front of a national audience. Who's going who's gonna to absolutely nail the God routine? No? Smart people. Like, what you going with in that moment? Like, if you're imagining yourself right now throwing around lightning bolts or throwing around grace, don't you still feel a little too small for this? Doesn't it feel like this is way beyond you. It does for me. Maybe you're different. But we can take a step back from that, right? Forget about imitating him for a second. Just picture him. And I don't mean as you would like him to be. I mean as he actually is. Eternal and righteous and holy. You wrapping your head all the way around that one? No? Am I the only one in the room that feels impossibly small for this task? That to even venture into it is a game I don't want to play. We have a problem, though, because that's the command from Paul, right? That command isn't just going away. He says, imitate God. So the the how question looms over our heads, right? How are we going to pull this off? I mean, don't don't you just wish 
we could get some help on this? I mean, could someone please just give us a smaller category to wrap our heads around? Someone please just give us a neat little summation of what it means to imitate the almighty and eternal God. Look at the text again. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Look at verse 2. And walk in what? So how can we begin to wrap our heads around the absolutely massive task of imitating the almighty and good God? Paul says, love. JB talked about love last week. I think he did an all right job. I talked about love a few weeks ago when we were doing our joint thing with our Korean friends. And so you may be noticing a consistent theme lately. We've been talking about love a lot. But hear me, I, I think it's a, a theme that we have to absolutely zero in on because it's one that our culture completely fails to understand. Absolutely, fundamentally misunderstands. And so uh, when, when I had the opportunity to talk about love a few weeks ago, we spent a little bit of time uh, fleshing out, maybe you were here, maybe you weren't, we spent a little bit of time fleshing out the distinction between the way our culture uses the word love and the way the, the Bible would actually use the word love. And the, the, those two things don't match up, right? Do you remember that? All right, so we spent a little bit of time kind of fleshing that out. And we said then that, um, that we attach weighty and significant words to things that aren't weighty and significant at all. Have you, have you seen this in our culture? Like there's a lot of things that we could point to, but there's some biblical and theological words that we could re, really spend some time on that I think have just absolutely been decimated by this, all right? Um, one of them is really easy to point out, uh, the word uh, awesome, right? All of us have seen how that word has been abused in our culture, right? You've probably done it yourself, right? I had, I, I had a deacon text me uh, about something this week, and it was uh, about uh, a report from a hospital visit they made, and the, it was a good report, and they were saying, we're going to keep monitoring this, and I wrote back, awesome, let me know. And as, as soon as I hit sin, I was like, is that the right word to use here? Have you ever been guilty of that? We've used that word in such a cheap way that now it, like, I mean, think about it. Doesn't it feel completely inappropriate to use it if we were actually find ourselves in a place where we are filled with awe? Like, doesn't it seem like too small a word in that moment now? We've ruined a big word. Literally, the thing the word is for, we have robbed it of its weightiness. And now, if I were to use that word in an awe-filled moment, people would accuse me of wrongdoing, right? We've ruined a good word. That one's pretty obvious, though. Another word that we could point to, maybe you haven't spent as much time thinking through, is the word condescend. If you're accused of being condescending in our culture, you're a jerk, right? I'm accused of being condescending all the time, right? If you're accused of being condescending, it's an incredibly negative thing, but theologians don't use that word that way. It's not a negative word to them, right? What does condescend mean? It means to come down to someone's level. So follow me here. Literally the greatest act of condescension in the history of the universe was when the eternal Son of God who is owed all the privileges and honor and glory in heaven alongside the Father, instead emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, put on flesh, and dwelt among us. Newsflash, not a jerk move. The greatest act of condescension in the history of the world was not a negative thing, but we've robbed this word of weightiness, and so now it feels out of place, right? 
To accuse Jesus of being condescending sounds terrible. Another word we already talked about is the word love. We live in a world that uses that word in such a cheap way, right? We said a few weeks ago that if you can use the same vocabulary word to adequately describe your affections for your wife, your spouse, and for tacos, then you're using the wrong word for at least one of those things. Hopefully. Either too low a view of your spouse or too high a view of tacos, despite how awesome they are. We, we use that word in a completely insufficient way, and, and so we've robbed it of its weightiness, right? We've reduced the word love to be nothing more than an emotion in our culture. But here's where, here's where it really gets complicated, because we've even lost ground on the strength of that emotion, right? To love something in our culture is to only have barely stronger affections for it than liking something in our culture, It's become this flighty thing that could come and go on a whim based on our circumstances. If you don't believe me, remember that the next time you hear someone say that they fell out of love with something or someone, simply because their circumstances changed, right? All they mean in that moment is it no longer brought them what they thought it would bring them and they don't want it anymore. But the word love doesn't make, used in that way doesn't make any sense using a biblically consistent vocabulary using a biblically consistent definition of the word love. Love as an emotion, even a strong one, doesn't make any sense that way. I can show you. Look at the text again. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So Paul says that we are to walk in love and to walk in love the same way that Jesus walked in love. And so how did Jesus walk in love? Better than I ever have, right? Paul says that Jesus laid down his life for the beloved. For Jesus' love is not an emotion. It's certainly not an emotion being a, that's capable of being affected by the circumstances going on around him. Oh, Lord, help us if that were true. For Jesus, love is an act of service. I told you all a few weeks ago that uh, whenever you're reading the Bible and you're, you come across the word love, just in your head, replace it with the word serve and see if it still makes sense. And here's the thing, it, it will. Love for Jesus is an act of service. Jesus is great act of love is not simply a deep feeling it is a measurable action but not just any measurable action an act of giving himself and of emptying himself while exalting the beloved that's what biblical love does biblical love by definition cannot exalt itself it makes much of another and paul says that when it comes to the love of jesus he goes so far as to even lay his own life down And then Paul illuminates that love action by giving us a picture that doesn't make a whole lot of sense in our culture. It feels foreign to us. He he says it's a fragrant offering and sacrifice. A fragrant offering and sacrifice. Um, In the Old Testament, for those of you who don't have much of a church background, we're told the story of, of God redeeming and calling out a people for himself called the Israelites, right? And so um, here's the thing about the Israelites. They're a mess, like just a big old hot mess. All right, they, they are absolutely a train wreck, and they 
are constantly getting themselves in trouble. Over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, we are explicitly told by God through his prophets that God is not rescuing them, saving them, redeeming them, whatever words you want to use, because of their righteousness, but because of the glory of his name. All right? Over and over and over again, that's the picture that we're giving, uh, given of the Israelites in the Old Testament. So you've got this completely unrighteous and unworthy ragtag group of people who are now supposed to live in proximity with an infinitely holy and righteous God. Those two things don't get along. You ever thought through that? They don't hang out together at the party. Perfect righteousness crushes and consumes unrighteousness. And so if these two things are going to live in proximity together, there's something that's got to bridge that gap. Something's got to happen there. And so God creates for them a sacrificial system. He creates a a bunch of laws and rules about what makes them clean and what makes them unclean. He creates a bunch of rules around what you do to make yourself clean again after you've been unclean. And and every bit of it is supposed to communicate to them the, the distinction between holiness and unholiness, between sinfulness and an utter lack of sinfulness. And so the Bible is pretty clear that that the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin, but for a season, God accepted a substitute instead of them. For a season, God, in love, communicated his holiness by giving them a structured system to help them see his goodness to see their sinfulness, and to bridge the gap between them. And all throughout the book of Leviticus, we're told that God delights in the smell of the burnt offering. The smoke billows up and fills his nostrils with good things. Now, it's not hard to be swept off your feet by the smell of barbecue. I know I am. Especially if you know what you're doing. I don't think that's what's going on here, though. I think it's about what the smell represents. Before I moved to the Nashville area, our family lived in a small town in southeast Texas. Hemphill, Texas, if you're familiar with it. If you're not, well, no loss. All right. Hemphill, Texas is a little bitty place. Nowhere near any other big place, okay? And so to the north of where we were living, a, a county away, was another town called San Augustine. San Augustine, Texas is known for one thing, miles and miles and miles of chicken farms. All over the place. Now, owning chickens is a great thing. Having eggs, having fresh meat, that's, that's a good thing. But you just can't get around the fact that chickens smell a certain way. And when you literally have millions of them in one place, that smell can only properly be described as stout. Okay? But Texas is also Piney Woods country. All right? And so to the south of where we were living, again, a county away, uh, is a town called Evadale. And in Evadale, Texas, there is a massive paper mill. Now, if you think a town full of chicken farms smells bad, then you have never in your life stood downwind of a mountain of wet paper pulp. (laughs) The entire county that Evadale, Texas sits in smells like mildew. Welcome to Evadale. You know you're here before you see the sign. People who travel through Evadale who don't live there like to joke and call the place Evil Smell. It's an unfortunate name. 
But what do you think the people who live there call it? Home. They call it home. Whether we're talking about chicken farms or paper mills or anything in between, it doesn't matter. The people who live there call it home. To them, it smells like a steady income. Providing for your family. Even the people not directly tied to the mill who just live in the area, it it smells like a strong local economy to them, right? Who cares what everybody else thinks? But the people who live there, who are making their life and living there, it's beautiful. All throughout the book of Leviticus, we're told that God delights in the aroma, the smell of the burnt offering. Hear me, guys. It is not about the smell of burnt flesh. It's about what's behind it, right? It's about God's people getting a sense of God's holiness. It's about God's people getting a sense of God's goodness and his provision to accept the the sacrifice, to accept the substitute instead of them. It's about them trusting him. It's about them following him. It's about them being obedient to him. I promise you God delights in that smell. And in Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, Paul tells us that the sacrifice of Jesus, the act of emptying himself to provide for his bride, is a pleasing aroma to the Father. Why? Because of what the smell represents, what's behind it. It's an expression of God's character that shows off the goodness of God to the world. Like, you want to know what real love is? You want to know what it can be, what it ought to be, what it's been designed by God to be? Jesus has a few ideas. Jesus knows better than we do, and Paul points to that and says, hey, imitate that. Copy that. Like you want to wrap your head around who God is and imitate him? Love like Jesus loves. but I can take a quick survey of my heart and life and actions and find some problems. How about you? I can take a survey of my life and how I've loved, shown love to people in the past and confess to you this morning that I still feel way, way too small for this. Maybe you're better at that than me. And it's here that we need to remind ourselves this morning that we are operating within the context of therefore. Do you remember? I mean, I know it's been a month and a half that we said back then that this was really important to us. That we are operating within the context of therefore. If you're, if you're new here, uh, you need to, to understand something massive about the context of Ephesians 5, 1 or 2. You ready? Just brilliant. It's towards the end of the letter. Pack it up, go home. Right? In a six-chapter letter, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 is at the tail end of the letter. So there's a lot that has happened by this point in our, in our story, right? And so what we've been saying is that if, we, if it's really dangerous for us to be reading and studying and applying the back half of Ephesians if we forget the front half of Ephesians. Paul spends the first three chapters of this letter, of this six-chapter letter, unfolding thing after thing after thing after thing of what Jesus has done, not what we have done. 
And so what we've been saying for the last few months is that if we put our due before Jesus is done, then we get the gospel backwards. Paul spends the first half of this chapter uh, uh, unpacking all the mighty and wonderful things that he has done up to and including reconciling us to the Father by paying the debt for our sin, by bridging the gap between our incompleteness and his completeness, right? And so this is not read as a love like Jesus loves or else. We've been saying all along that any command of God on our lives is rooted in his character and is about lining us up with who he's already joyfully declared us to be. We have first been loved. So much so that the world cannot possibly wrap its head around understanding it. We have first been loved in a way that shakes the very foundations of the world we're standing on. And because those of us who are now followers of Jesus rest in the relationship provided by that love, we're set free to walk in a way that attempts to love the same way that Jesus does. Not to curry favor with him, are you kidding me? Attempt to look like our Savior. We want to look like our King. We are freed to walk in a way that empties ourselves and exalts another. We are freed to walk in a way that lays down our rights, that lays down our privileges, that lays down the things that we believe are owed to us for the good of the beloved. This is true for every single area of our life. Whether you're talking about the small petty stuff in here, or you're talking about the somewhat bigger stuff in your homes, or even the massive culture-changing stuff going on outside this place. In order to look like our Savior, we are called to love like he loves, to lay down our rights, to lay down our privileges, and follow him. So I've been here a little over a year now. And I think, maybe I'm wrong, but I think that we've laid the groundwork pretty well for how we'll handle things like political issues and things going on around us. Today is officially Sanctity of Life Sunday. It's a day set aside for a lot of churches to to specifically focus on uh, the topics of life and abortion and how the gospel would speak to those things, how the Bible would instruct us to live, uh, not just on our own, but in community with others in response to those things. And here's the deal. I I could dodge that today. Some people might be happy with me about that. But it's not going to change the fact that other places are are highlighting it today. And it's certainly not going to change the fact that protests have been waged on both sides of this issue all this last week, all over our country about this. Dodging it doesn't feel like loving you well. Because you're going to go home from here and you're probably going to get on Facebook or something and you're going to see darts being thrown around back and forth from both sides over one of the most hotly debated issues of our culture right now. So how about instead I give you lenses to see correctly? How about we do that? How does this text apply to Sanctity of Life Sunday? To demand what we believe is owed to us, even as it causes harm to another, fundamentally misunderstands the love of Jesus Christ. Fundamentally misunderstands it. 
You cannot simultaneously claim to understand the love of Jesus while demanding your way over another. Those two things are inconsistent. Now, are there some conversations and debates that are nuanced? Sure, I'll give you that. Do all the people taking part in this public debate care a lick what Jesus has to say on the matter? Not even close. But for those who call Jesus king, for those who call Jesus king, whether we're talking about political issues outside of these doors or we're talking about petty little things inside these doors, for those who call Jesus as king, it is a core level misunderstanding of the gospel to demand and to fight for what serves us at the expense of the beloved. It's not what the follower of Jesus does, and there is no need for nuance there. The greatest act of condescension in the history of the world was not someone who took what they thought they deserved. It was God himself, the only one who ever actually deserved a lick of anything, truly awesome in every sense of the word, who emptied himself of his rights and became a servant to save others. We have been loved. We are now freed to love. And it is impossible to look like our king without that feature. Do we let people take advantage of us? No. Do we act as pushovers in a world that thinks that's how you ought to live? No. But a core level attitude of service changes things. It will also blow people away. It's intriguingly otherworldly, right? Like some of you have people that you came in the door thinking about this morning that your hearts are burdened for. You want them so desperately to see Jesus and to love him like you love him. Like listen, you you want to show what Jesus does. You want them to to get a picture of who Jesus is that will blow their mind, serve in such a sacrificial way that they've never seen it before. Lay down your rights, lay down your privileges for the good of another. It'll blow their mind, man completely foreign to us. But it'll also change them. It'll change them because the love of Jesus is not hypoallergenic. It's gritty and it does something. It's effectual. The love that we're talking about this morning doesn't make any sense in a whitewashed and sanitized you go be the best you you can be kind of world. It fundamentally changes the one that the love is bestowed upon. They're forever different because of it. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? For the follower of Jesus, we press into God. We press in by asking them to give us a deeper sense of what he has done for us. And when we start to get a real understanding of just how significantly he has shown love to us, it's really, really difficult to not naturally turn around and show love to others. Like from, just from the pastoral side of things, when people come into my office and say, hey, we, I, I want this and I want that, I demand this, I demand that. You, you know what my knee-jerk response is? Hey, let's talk about what Jesus has done. It's not trying to to settle those arguments and come to a compromise. Let's talk gospel in this moment because apparently we're misunderstanding some things. If we're a follower of Jesus, we press into God. We we beg him to give us a deeper sense of what he has done. Maybe for some of us it means that we need to repent of how we've handled some things here. I don't know. 
Whether that's big issues out there or dumb little things in here. We haven't loved well. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. That'll be an opportunity for us to, to put action steps to the things he's calling us to in our hearts. I'll have some people up front to talk. If that's helpful for you, pray with you if that's helpful for you. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you're here. Hope you find this to be a safe place to work through the truth claims of Jesus and his gospel. My hope for you is that you'll walk away from here this morning understanding that the love of Jesus is unlike anything you've ever witnessed before. Maybe today is the day that you want to submit for the first time to that love. Repent of your sin and come to him as Lord. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have some folks up front to talk if that's good for you. Let's all respond to God's word this morning. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for first giving us an example of what perfect love is. My ideas are woefully short. On my best day, I have failed to live up to your standard. What's crazy about your love is that you bestow it on those who have no hope of living up to your standard. Thank you for being a God who wasn't content to sit on a faraway throne and be frustrated with how we're not getting it right. You stepped down off of that throne and came to do something about our problem. You've drawn us near by coming near yourself. God, thank you for being a God who condescends. God, would you lead people to know you this morning? Would you draw people to yourself? Would people get a sense of who you are and how big you are and how holy you are and how desperately they need you right now? For those of us who already do know you, would you draw us deeper still? Would you help us be a church that doesn't bicker and fight for what we believe is owed to us, but rather freely lays down? We can look like our king. We love you so much. In your name we pray, Jesus.